being too early or being too late are often uh, equally fatal and being too early often is even worse because one doesn't give up hope and one keeps waiting and in the process burns hundreds of millions of dollars and then the luck element that you were talking about so some of this stuff one will just get totally lucky on the same idea at a different time turns out to be less successful or more successful because stuff is mature so timing is very important and there are some things that people are able to do which is they once they've started playing the game they figure out that it's the wrong time and they can adjust Welcome to Prime Venture Partners podcast, a podcast for entrepreneurs looking to build and grow their startups. Learn about uncommon strategies and common traps from makers and doers of startup ecosystem. Welcome to the Prime Venture Partners podcast. Today we have with us a special guest and a dear friend, Ashish Gupta. While Ashish needs no introduction, He is a well-known technocrat, serial entrepreneur, and uh, been an investor both at an individual level and as a VC for many years. Welcome to the show, Ashish. Yeah, thank you very much, Amit. Thanks for having me over. Ashish, you've done a lot of different things, right? You and I started our careers together at IBM Research many moons ago. You started with your first company, Jungly, uh, and and sold it to Amazon in the early days. Can you talk a little bit about the various things kind of you've been up to? and uh, you know some of the some of the stories from from the various things and your first stint in india as well i guess uh, not knowing what i'm doing is probably the hallmark of of my career so as a result i bounced around in a lot of different jobs and uh, ibm as you remember uh, we had a wonderful boss uh, who i didn't appreciate enough but over the years i regret having left him too early um, so i ended up uh, at jungly and then uh, left amazon to start Uh, another services company uh, which became a services company called Tavant and uh, Tavant is what brought me to India really the first time because uh, uh, we opened two offices one in Gurgaon and one in Bangalore and uh, as a result I stayed in India for close to a year at that time HSR layout had practically no homes in it and finding an auto used to be hard so it was an interesting time and then spent 8 years in india with helion which is a venture fund that i started along with four other folks and now i've been back in the us for about 5 years wonderful wonderful ashish and and many of the listeners may know that ashish has recently kind of joined us as partner emeritus at at prime so we'll talk a lot about his journey as an investor for this podcast so ashish you've also done a lot of angel investing and professional kind of vc investing so can you talk to our listeners about some of the lessons that you've learned uh, over the last 10 years and in particular let me start with you know what are things about angel investing or for that matter we see that people you know believe or have you know myths versus realities but may not be true so um one of the myths that i have heard from or at least i think a myth uh, from a lot of folks especially those who are not in investing is that somehow angel investing is a way to make money i found that angel investing is more a way to exercise one's passion uh, and it costs a lot of money so it is probably more expensive than golf or tennis as a way to keep oneself entertained and once in a while one gets lucky which forms the apocryphal stories as to what draws the rest of the flies in only to get fried on the flames of angel investing uh, but that is that is one the other one which i find as an investor is a is a very interesting journey is that one can become a good investor by learning what works for others and probably warren buffett is a interesting example he's written more about investing than most other investors so by that token we should all have become warren buffett by now but man is that story a sad ending for most of us who have tried to emulate 
So it comes down to discipline of execution. It's very easy to read, but like everything else in life, we all play a certain stroke. And just by watching Nadal, I can't change my backhand to the way he plays his backhand. And we regress back to the stuff that we know. So one of the things that I find is a myth that a lot of people believe in, but I found it very hard to practice, is that by just talking to folks and learning what others do, one can become an investor. Whereas what I found, it is more like finding what works for you, because all one needs are three good deals in an entire lifetime, and one is done. And that is out of hundreds of millions of deals. And it's discovering what is that special something about how you play the game that I think is the hard part. Yeah, since you mentioned Buffett, you know, one of the things that he also says is you, you need to get, you know, you need to be right five or six times in your entire life to have sort of an extraordinary outcome. And yet, even in the venture community, one of the things that I see is there's a lot of FOMO and a lot of this zero-sum kind of mentality, whereas you mm-hmm. don't see that in public market investors, right? Public market investors, you could invest in value, you could invest in growth, you could do that. A- any kind of thoughts on why that or why that is? Or is it that India has classically been a little shallow as a market in terms of market depth, and therefore there are only going to be so many few companies. Uh, so what do you what do you think about yeah. that? Yeah, I think it uh, does. Uh, I would agree with you that there is FOMO uh, in the private world. And that comes, I think, because of a scarce resource. Because there is only one seat on this motorcycle, the motorcycle being any startup that is leaving at any point in time. And they will take only one rider on the pillion with them. Whereas the public market investing looks like a bus. As many people can climb into it as they want. It is still equally hard uh, as to which bus to climb in. But that perception of a bus versus a motorcycle exacerbates the sense of FOMO in, uh, in venture investing. Incorrectly so in both cases. Uh, in India, as you correctly pointed out, even more so. Because there are only so many motorcycles out there. Where in the US, there is an entire kafila of motorcycles that one could ride. So it's a more mature space. But I think it's more this motorcycle versus bus. Uh, given number of investors who can count that does lead to it. So since you've also invested in the US and you were also a Kaufman fellow earlier, did, do you see that landscape different? I mean, obviously it's a deeper market, no question, right? Yeah. A much larger economy. But in terms of just investing itself? It's, it's significantly different. And I think it's different. If you think of investment banking circa 1970s, uh, there would be one investment banker who did everything. And then over time, it got specialized. Uh, there were tech, healthcare, blah, blah, blah. Within tech, there became internet bankers. Within internet bankers, there are advertising bankers and so on and so forth. So the US is much further along on this journey. And as a result, the market is significantly more specialized. Even starting 2006, uh, if you look at, uh, I mean, Helion's journey or some of the others, uh, we all did everything. And uh, as the Indian market has gotten more depth, people have become more specialized. So that is one. Uh, two, I think it's the same thing as in the venture business, uh, the startup industry. The US had HP going back to the late 50s, early 60s. So there is 60 years of startup tradition. Your neighbor is a VP of engineering. The guy at backdoor is a VP of marketing and so on and so forth. Whereas in India, you got to hunt the experienced people down to get guidance. So that whole maturity curve is very different. The depth of market is very different. The fact that there are exits on a regular basis uh, makes the market very different also. Um, And it reflects in the mentality, in how many people there are of each type, practitioners that is, and how specialized any of these uh, areas get. You can find VP of engineering recruiters uh, that specialize only in backend and performance-oriented companies. Whereas I think uh, finding an executive-level recruiter in India right now who specializes only in VPF engineering is still a way to go. And this is nothing good or bad. It's a matter of growing up as the market is growing up. 
and the India market is growing up at a much faster pace than the time that it took the US. Another thing that you shared with me earlier is this whole notion of investing behind trends, right? So what do you think about, you know, riding the next wave, right? Yeah. You know, 2015 was all hyper-local and now suddenly edtech and healthcare is all the all the rage and AI and what have you. Any yeah. any thoughts on that? So I think uh, trends are, are very dangerous because uh, most of them turn out to be uh, misleading. And venture is a micro-business. Uh, if you find the right micro in the right macro, then you do make a lot of money. But picking the right macro, but missing the right micro, uh, you just uh, end up in trouble. And a lot of macros turn out to be the wrong macros. Uh, ATM networks, uh, a whole bunch of the telecom infra stuff, as soon as it was getting hot, it died out. A security turns out to be a, a oft-repeated macro theme, hyper-local and so on and so forth. So I think, at least in my view, one needs to focus on the specific company that one is talking about and then see whether it is in a market that is large so that there is room to make mistake as opposed to picking a right trend but then getting the company wrong. Some trends, by the way, do turn out to be more valuable than other trends, but most trends turn out to be wrong. So for example, if you look at e-commerce investing in India, uh, in the 2008 to 2012 timeframe, uh, dozens of e-commerce companies got money. Uh, pretty much one is left standing, uh, Flipkart. And I was an unfortunate investor in several of the others. So by no means is this claim of having picked the right one. We missed the right ones uh, at, at Helion. Uh, but just as evidence that right trend uh, and a whole bunch of other stuff got mixed into that. A lot of it was getting access to capital, which was the bigger driver than the trend itself. So I find trend-based investing a very, very dangerous way to go about trying to make money. So Ashish, if I want to unpack the micro trend or picking the micro in the macro, is that just a bet on a team or is that a particular niche that you're going after or is that just luck, right? Like what is what does that micro mean if you can elaborate? So indeed, the team makes a huge, a huge difference within that micro uh, because in a new trend, the big advantage is you can make mistakes because presumably it is white space. And then the person who can make those mistakes and fix those mistakes turns out to be a much higher probability winner in a new trend. There are very few rules to follow. That is one. Um, in Let's continue to take e-commerce as the example. In that particular trend, fundraising skills uh, would have been a huge differentiator for the people who would win versus the people who would lose. And then the luck portion comes in, uh, as you called out. The person who had access to deep pockets, a deep-pocketed investor early in the game, had a much higher odd of winning that game because it turned out that money was a huge determinant of uh, success. And luck, by the way, is just a, an, an overriding theme across the board. So let us just remove that out because over that we have no constraint. So therefore, I would reduce it down to the team, the team's ability to uh, be intellectually honest, learn, correct their mistakes uh, within a trend. What, what makes a great team? And you know what makes a great sort of investable company in your in your mind? So the team actually is a very interesting one. And by the way, about 18, 20 years ago, two of us, a guy who's a senior exec at Facebook uh, today and I, we were both Kaufman fellows. So we went and interviewed a dozen of the who's who in the venture industry. David Morgan Taylor, Tony Sun, uh, Len Baker, and the list goes on. And believe it or not, we did not walk away with one, not even one, uh, agreed upon set of principles on which they all invest. And these are all ridiculously successful investors. So with that caveat, I will tell you 
what I end up uh, looking for. I mean, of course, one could agree on one in that people should be smart, people should be honest. But I'm talking about uh, stuff that goes beyond the basics. So the stuff that I end up finding works for me in a team is uh, one is intellectual honesty. And by intellectual honesty, I mean the ability to face up facts. You know, for those of you, especially given that most of our audience is in, in India, a lot of the stuff that the Gita talks about. So being able to look at facts, I think, is an extremely important one, even when they're unpleasant, especially when they're unpleasant. Uh, outbound skills is another one. In some cases, that manifests itself as marketing, in other cases as sales, but it always manifests itself in the ability to sell the company to investors, to potential recruits, to other team members, and so on and so forth. The ability to think big but execute small, because if one doesn't think big, one ends up building a rinketing company. If one only thinks big but doesn't execute small at all, then one is trying to climb Everest, but one is stuck with uh, analysis paralysis uh, at base camp. And last but not least is adaptability. One thing is for sure, that whatever you thought is going to be wrong. So how does one keep changing uh, as the game uh, kind of plays out? These are uh, four of the things that I end up looking for. And then there are table stakes. Uh, they got to be intelligent. You got to be honest. By the way, lots of people make money with people who are dishonest. So there is uh, nothing wrong. It's just something that uh, doesn't work for um, for me. And I don't mean that as a left-handed uh, remark. There are folks who get away with that uh, and uh, power to them. But that, those are some of the things that you have to choose, which are on the value system portion uh, and not on the skill set part. Actually, if Sorry. I may interrupt for a second, right? So yeah. how do you, these are hard things to assess, right? In terms of, you know, intellectual honesty, maybe some are more skill oriented, like this, you know, sales, marketing, outbound or adaptability. How, how would you figure that out when you're investing in a team and you don't have all day and all night or certainly not, you know, months and years to, to make that decision? Uh, some are easier than others. So actually intellectual honesty turns out to be somewhat easier because uh, you can actually pick arguments and fights with founders on, on belief systems that you uh, are actually antithetically inclined to, but you can still pick the contrarian position to find out. And especially in the course of a debate, you find out whether people are willing to change their minds. Uh, so one very interesting thing that Michael Dell used to do, he used to interview people for 12 hours straight. I don't know whether he still does that or not. They would join him for breakfast at 7 a.m. and they would stay with him till dinner. And a part of the thinking was that how long can a person keep up a, pra a pretense? And sooner or later that veneer is going to fall off and you'll discover who the true person is. And some of it does work for companies also. If one spends enough time, you begin to find out whether people do believe what they're saying. Uh, outbound skills and marketing, uh, you also kind of figure out. Uh, adaptability is much harder because it's a much smaller area. Uh, some folks, uh, actually Rishi Navani, who founded Matrix, uh, once told me a very interesting thing. Uh, he would pick people who had dealt with adversity in their lives. And that would give him a sense of the fact that, uh, and I'm sure he had many more things, uh, but this was an interesting example of whether or not they were adaptable. Uh, so looking for historical stuff, reference checks, I find is pretty much the only reliable way of getting data because I find I'm fairly easy to fool. So talking to people who have worked with folks in the past is, I think, a necessary precondition. And thinking being executing small is extremely, extremely hard, especially for first-time entrepreneurs that just come to you with an idea. And I have often gotten clobbered there. So I agree with you, Amit, that they are on different dimensions in terms of hardness, uh, in terms of evaluating, and some element of risk is indeed very much there. And one thing that you do is you don't put up more money if you've figured out that you've invested with the wrong set of people, which, by the way, is a mistake that we as institutional investors often make because we fall in love, we don't give up hope, and we keep putting more money behind 
some of those companies. So some of these lessons actually carry over to round two of investing, not just in round one. Very fascinating. Pitching gears, Ashish, from teams to companies, right? So teams obviously are a critical part of the company, but there's also market, there's timing, there may be other things. We talked a little bit about trends earlier. So what what would take a company to a great outcome or success beyond the team? Kind of any thoughts on that? That's a that's a hard one. And uh, and while I'm sharing some of these things, uh, there is an overriding theme, which is that all startups are an exercise in managing schizophrenia, in my mind. Uh, you tell people to be cash conscious, but they should spend on the right things. Uh, they should believe in themselves, but they should be willing to replace the folks with the right team members. They should listen to the market, but often the market doesn't necessarily know what it wants. Okay, So it's a series of these schizophrenic calls, which is why judgment turns out to be such an important ingredient of what companies succeed or not. So with that caveat, which is please take all of this with a large grain of salt because it is that situational judgment which makes the difference uh, between the right call or the wrong call. Uh, to your point, what makes companies interesting? I think the companies that turn out to be, in my mind, more successful than others, the CEO has a huge uh, disproportionate impact on successful companies versus not. Uh, while the founding team is important, the CEO turns out to be disproportionately important as time goes on which by the way, really pisses off people like me who have never been CEOs and who have been VPs of engineering or head of product or stuff like that. But the reality is that the CEO has disproportionate impact uh, on the success or failure of a company. And that begins to sort itself out relatively quickly. Also, uh, and people say this in many words, culture. And I find the elements of culture are more along the lines of, does the company do what it says? Is the single biggest element of culture. And that includes implementing its own culture. When company says, we believe in honesty, the question comes down to, do you do what you say? Uh, we believe in humility. Do you do what you say? Or do you keep that arrogant developer around because, oh my God, she's the best. So I think the single biggest determinant is, in my experience, do the companies do what they say? Uh, that way they plan. But then the question is, do they implement the plan that they talk about? So if you ask me, that turns out to be the single biggest determinant in my experience. And that keeps the company moving forward. And if a company is not moving forward, they don't, uh, the only way you make progress is by moving forward, even if it's in the wrong direction. Then you fix it and you move into a different direction. So I would probably come back to this one thing, uh, Amit, which uh, is, does the company keep doing uh, what they say? How about timing, Ashish, right? Uh, I often think about the fact that you know, and, and not necessarily completely as a determining thing, but if you just happen to be in the right place at the right time, just catching a demand curve, uh, you mm -hmm. know, like this, we're going through this COVID pandemic right now, digitization is happening like there's no tomorrow, education is happening online like there's no tomorrow. And, and you obviously can't plan for this, right? But it could be some other trends, you know, geo nobody could have predicted and India would lead to 500 million, you know, daily active mobile internet users five, six years ago. It took a while to get there. But, you know, my partner Sanjay, our partner, Sanjay Swami, you know, likes to say that when the company is born is a big determinant of what it will end up being. If you're born in 2016, you don't know of a world before 500 million internet users. But if you're born in 2010, people would laugh when we launched mobile at Make My Trip saying, what's going to happen? You'll do 10 transactions a day kind of thing. So how important is timing in, in, in that? And, and Yeah, um, very, very much so. I mean, and as you pointed out, uh, being too early or being too late are often uh, equally fatal. And being too early often is even worse because one doesn't give up hope and one keeps waiting and in the process burns hundreds of millions of dollars. And then the luck element that you were talking about. 
I don't think any one of us could have determined when Mukesh Bhai is going to go ahead and put Jio in place. Uh, so he isn't listening to any one of us saying, please, sir. Uh, so some of this stuff, one will just get totally lucky on. The same idea at a different time turns out to be less successful or more successful because stuff is matured. So timing is very important. And there are some things that people are able to do, which is they once they've started playing the game, they figure out that it's the wrong time and they can adjust. But I really don't know what is a practical way to deal with this timing issue, given that the luck element and so much of it is out of control. But there, I can only stop it saying, yes, it is very important. But I wish I had something more pragmatic to offer. Okay, so what do you do about it other than suffer its consequences? I don't. So, so there, is, there is one sort of, uh, you know, lining around this cloud, which is that if you constantly keep at it, right, and there's a fine line between, you know, stubbornness and persistence. At some point, you may want to throw in the towel, right? And obviously entrepreneurs are entrepreneurs because they're supremely optimistic and willing to take that leap of faith and willing to take that risk. How do you figure that out? Right. And, and, you know, when do you know when to hold and when to fold? Because you could keep at it, right? Cost of creating a company, you know, marketing, et cetera, notwithstanding has actually come down quite a bit. Right. So how do you, you know, are, are there some kind of lessons learned from your various investments and your journey? Yeah. I wish I had any lessons there uh, because the line between persistence and stubbornness or madness and genius uh, is only post facto in my experience. So I know people who have, of course, there are some things that you have to do. If you find that one is too early, one needs to cut burn, one needs to extend runway so that you keep diluting. So I'm assuming that that stuff you and I are taking for granted, which is how to prolong life. Let's leave the how out. It is when and why should one continue to persist? I don't have good answers, Amit. And that is where I think several of the uh, the founders have to follow their own conviction and they do follow their own conviction. And then history declares them as geniuses or history doesn't talk about them at all. Uh, but I have not found any markers uh, other than these practical how ones, which is that if you think you're too early, uh, for sure cut burn, get rid of people, bring it down to a small set of people, not for cost reasons alone, but because then you need believers uh, to be dredging through the desert with you in the hope of an oasis. Uh, so don't carry a whole lot of people. Uh, those tools, I have better answers for. Whether or not you should do it at all, I don't know. Makes sense. You know, one of the one of the options to fold and a, and a constructively positive option is to take an exit, right? How should one think about exits, either from yeah. a founder point of view or from an investor point of view? So all of us as investors love to talk about the fact that we are all on the same side of the table and stuff like that, which I found, which I find is a little bit of a lie because we are often on the same side of the table, but sometimes we are on different sides of the table. And exits is, is one such thing. So if somebody as a venture fund has got $150, $200 million that they have raised, uh, unless they get meaningful exits, meaningful exits being at least a third of the fund or half of the fund, it doesn't really move the needle. Uh, but for founders, it does often make sense uh, to get out early. And that is one disconnect that does end up plaguing uh, companies once in a while. The reverse works also, where I have found founders to believe that, no, 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 we have to keep going. Whereas my experience has taught me that we should not keep going. So ironically, we find ourselves often in the other side of the equation also, where I'm trying to convince somebody that they should exit the company. Uh, 
uh, but they believe that they should keep going. And by the way, again, only time will tell who's right. So please don't get me wrong. I'm not by any means implying that I'm right, but our judgments leave us into very different places. I think exits have to be constantly orchestrated many, many years in advance. And one of the things that I have found allows you to create exit opportunities is creating serendipity. And this sounds like an oxymoron, but by that I mean the CEO needs to constantly build relationships with all kinds of people in an ecosystem so that serendipity has a chance to strike the company because a lot of acquisitions happen because people know you, people have heard of you, and so on and so forth. So building a steady stream of relationships, just like a CEO builds a steady stream of investor relationships, I have found to have meaningfully positive correlation with acquisition options going forward. So that is one recommendation that I would make to CEOs, but this is a uh, this is an area that gets totally ignored. And I would do that for years, three, four years, and keep building these relationships with potential partners, acquirers, competitors, and so on and so forth. I completely agree with that. As one speaking to Jyoti Bansal, you know, well before he sold out, like you know, twelve hours before his IPO, and he said every year I would talk to anybody who wanted to acquire me with no intent to ever sell until he eventually did. And you know, I think Cisco had been talking to him for six, seven years like offering mm-hmm. him every year and, yeah. and it kind of helped him kind of convert. And, and, and of course he was doing well all along the journey, but he had cultivated several such people should the needs so arise. So I like that notion of creating exit opportunities, uh, even at least as an option value. Yeah. And uh, the caution there being that one needs to approach these conversations exactly as you pointed out with zero expectation. And we are back to the Gita. So one should literally be having these conversations with a view that this is not because I want to sell the company, because that often makes the conversations very awkward, but rather a belief in the fact that a larger network will be of some use to the company uh, and do it from that first principles. Uh, but indeed, as you were mentioning, Jyoti, I have not uh, heard this before, but makes a lot of sense. Uh, six years is a long time to have maintained a relationship which results in this, but not uncommon at all. Yeah, and not only six years. I mean, of a company that was growing at some crazy triple digit, you know, 50 million, 100 million, 200 million kind of revenue, uh, yeah. you know, growth rate and, and still maintaining those relationships. Uh, that mm-hmm. was definitely one big lesson learned. Yeah. And just continuing along that line, uh, Ashish, right? And and you were an investor in Make My Trip and, and Helion was as well. And, and we went public in 2010. But a lot of companies are choosing to stay private longer and longer, right? What does that kind of mean? And, you know, what are the implications of it? Yeah. So Amit, I understand very little of this, but the little that I do understand uh, leads to a fairly interesting set of, I think, existential crises around the notion of markets. One of the reasons people went public is because that was the source of capital. Uh, While most of us think of going public as a path to exit, it actually, the single biggest thing that it does is gives the company access to capital. It gives it legitimacy and it gives it access to cheaper capital. You can borrow more easily and so on and so forth. And I think a lot of this money that got printed in 2008, 2009, and which is now getting printed again, has created private pools of capital that make the public market somewhat less less relevant. And uh, companies, therefore, keep relying on private folks. So what it tells us, in my mind, is that there is now a huge market outside of the public markets where you can discover price and get access to massive pools of capital till the company has become massively big. Uh, I think if, uh, and correct me, Amit, you always know this stuff way better than I do. The Amazons of the world went public at sub-billion dollar valuations. Is that correct? Even lesser. Even lesser. Even lesser. And, and, and uh, I think that Amazon had only raised about eight or $10 million pre-IPO. Got you. 
and look at the points at which the Ubers of the world are going public. I mean, what, how many, two orders of magnitude of, uh, so it tells us that uh, at one level, most of the value capture is happening in the private markets and the public market is more and more for the suckers, which is not very good uh, for the retail investor or for a uh, vast majority of mankind in general and just points more towards the fact that wealth concentration uh, is getting more exacerbated and the private markets are one indicator of that. Very, very interesting, Ashish. Uh, we, we could go on for hours, but maybe just a couple of questions before we wrap up here. Uh, you know, can you talk about things that you wish people knew, right? Both entrepreneurs and investors that they don't or perhaps are sort of left by the wayside? Uh, I guess one was just this notion of this exit planning that I mentioned. And the other one that uh, honestly is probably more indicative of the fact that I'm getting old and should uh, go to pasture than anything else. Uh, I find that uh, more and more uh, folks are getting coming off the view that uh, good guys don't win and that one has to be a jerk in order to uh, to do well. And it's amazing how founders that had a reputation of being nasty used to find it hard to get funded, whereas today they wear it as a badge of honor. That is one thing that I just struggle with. I'm not sure I can put it in the category of knowledge that is secret. It is, I guess, belief systems that are that are changing. What else can I... I can't think of what else, Amit. If something comes to mind, yeah. I, one of, I one of the things you were you were telling me earlier was that you know money is a kind of side effect of creating value, right? So you don't create yeah. companies for you know making money. I mean that's an yeah. outcome, right? That's not an input. Yeah, I do firmly believe that to be the case, and that is also another one that is changing. But indeed, if one were to abstract it out at the level of outcome versus process, um, I think we can only focus on process, and outcomes will be what they will. You can eat right, you can eat salad, and then time will figure out whether or not my genetics overwhelmed my diet and I still ended up with a heart attack. But the process is what I can focus on. And that is extraordinarily true uh, about companies. And one very interesting symptom of that is, do you focus on competition or do you focus on your customer? And you'll find that companies do a whole bunch of things driven by competition. Whereas you have no control, your competitor's CEO might not know what he or she is doing themselves, whereas I'm trying to figure out what they are doing. So talk of you know, extrapolating into the ether. Uh, but yes, uh, I would reaffirm what you said, that uh, building a company is all about focusing on uh, delivering value. And then maybe one will make money out of it, uh, and maybe one will not. And being an investor makes it harder, because as an investor, we have no control. Uh, and one is only talking about money. And yet I'm suggesting that don't focus on making money. That sounds totally crazy, uh, but I do mean that try to find companies that are creating value and money will follow. Absolutely. One last question, Ashish, which is what are any kind of tips or do's or don'ts for young entrepreneurs that are perhaps starting out today or in the last, you know, six, 12 months, just one or two tips of, you know, what they should think about early in their journeys. A, a few different things. Uh, one is uh, pay attention to cash. It's the single biggest reason companies die. And that sounds uh, funny and uh, oxymoron, not uh, uh, not oxymoronish, but tautological and obvious. But you'll be amazed how little attention people pay to cash. The other one is uh, be empathetic. You will find that empathy actually increases the odds of success. And empathy towards your customers, empathy towards your team um, increases the odds of success. And last but not least is, uh, while this sounds very trendy, and my earlier comment about trends, 
become spiritual, you'll find that uh, having no ego is a fantastic way to succeed because then you listen to customers, you listen to teams, and you make the right decisions. And uh, I would submit to you that whether it is Einstein or whether it is Warren Buffett or Bezos or Bill Gates, one of the things that you will find as a recurring theme, and there are counterexamples, by the way, is that uh, a self is trumped by fact and market. And these are all signs of having no ego. So these are the three things that I would call out. Cash, empathy, and try and get rid of your ego and be spiritual. That is a very profound note to end on. So we'll, we'll try and make it a little lighter for the users, but some real deep and insightful thoughts there, Ashish. Since you've recently just joined us at Prime as partner emeritus and all of us have known each other for a long time, you know, we all often joke and, and feel honored and privileged and lucky that we were able to kind of get you to affiliate with us. Maybe just some things about, you know, how you got to know us over the years. I know Sripati and you were together at grad school. So maybe just about, you know, something you want to say about Prime or any of the folks at Prime. Yeah. No, first, uh, thank you for uh, for inviting me along on the journey. This is a intensely personal journey. And I know that the chemistry between all the existing team members at Prime is more like a family rather than anything else and a family which is pretty honest with each other as I've also witnessed some of those uh, those arguments over the years. So I'm really both grateful and honored that you all would have me along. It's funny that uh, this is a team where I don't know if you know, well, you do know. Uh, I know Raj for, uh, oh my God, uh, close to getting 32 years. Uh, I met him as a grad student when I was a grad student and he's been a mentor to me for that long. He was already a very successful entrepreneur then and I bumped into him. And uh, Shripati and I, of course, uh, were at Stanford together as grad students figuring out how to share a beer because nobody had any cash. Uh, and then you and I shared a boss at IBM. You were smart enough to know that he was among the most amazing guys one could work for. I was not, so I quit and went to Oracle. Uh, and Sanjay tried his best to get me involved in Rotary but I could never quite figure out why I should spend my Sunday evening uh, when I could spend it on a badminton court. Why would I sit around uh, with a bunch of guys trying to do good? Um, but that's how I ended up meeting Sanjay. And so I have wonderful memories. Uh, and wonderful memories, by the way, even more of eating food at each one of your homes, eating all the dahi in Sanjay's house and eating all the chutney in Shripati's house. So uh, I have a one bunch of wonderful memories. I'm looking forward to this journey. Absolutely, Ashish. We are we are equally excited and I still can't forget how you kicked my ass in badminton every time we would go play in San Mateo or wherever you would take me on, on uh, weeknights whenever I'd visit the valley. But it's it's truly an honor and privilege to have you and, and I'm sure our readers will enjoy listening to this podcast. So thanks again for being on the Prime Venture Partners podcast. It was really good to have you. Thanks, sir. Listeners, thank you for listening to this episode of the podcast. Subscribe now on your favorite podcast app for free and you'll be the first one to know when new episodes are available. Just search for Prime Venture Partners Podcast in Apple Podcast, Spotify, CastBox or however you get your podcasts. Then hit subscribe. And if you have enjoyed the show, we would be really grateful if you leave us a review on Apple Podcast. To read the full transcript, find the link in the show notes.